Welcome to this Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad that you could join us today. Uh, our lessons are coming from the Nazarene, Nazarene Quarterly, and today's lesson is actually coming from the Sunday of April 19th. The lesson is titled, The Money Changers at the Temple, and our text comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. The theme or focus of the lesson, Jesus is the focus of authentic worship. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word that you've given us. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to study your word and to learn from you. And we ask that your spirit would bless this word to our hearts in your name. Amen. Why do you go to church? I suppose if I asked that question, I would get a lot of different answers. But most of you probably wouldn't say, I go to church to find a good steak, or I go to church to get changed for a $100 bill. But this was the situation where Jesus found himself. Now, in today's lesson, we have an account that we normally call the cleansing of the temple. In this section of Scripture, we learn of a visit that Jesus makes to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's been baptized by John. He's gone into the desert to be tempted of, the, of Satan. And uh, now he is coming to Jerusalem. Now, his ministry has been centered around uh, Nazareth in the Galilee area. But for this visit, he's coming to Jerusalem. So he's going south. And it's a little bit unusual because of what he does. Jesus, when he gets to the temple, what he finds so uh, discourages him, so enrages him, that he makes a whip and drives these people out of the temple. He chases out the ones who are doing business there in the temple. So it's one of the few times where we see Jesus act aggressively. And so we see a side of Jesus that we don't normally see. Now, Scripture tells us of two different occasions where Jesus cleansed the temple. This first occasion is from John's Gospel. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Mark, Luke, and Matthew also tell us, tell us of a second time that Jesus cleansed the temple. Now, that was near the end of his ministry, that last week of his life, right before he goes to the cross. So there are some who believe that there was only one temple cleansing and that the times got shifted around. But I really believe that there were two, uh, that John tells us of an initial cleansing and then the other gospel writers tell us of a cleansing that occurred later. And one of the main reasons for thinking this is because in John's gospel, when they confront him about this cleansing, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a sign. And that sign is from the prophet Jonah, that just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, the Son of Man will be in uh, the tomb for three days. And he also talks about how if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. Now, <clears throat> that part about rebuilding the temple is not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's only in John. But when you come to the accounts of Jesus' trial, 
Matthew mentions this and the other gospel writers too, that one of the accusations is that Jesus has talked about how he will destroy the temple in three days. So we see that there most likely was a, a first time when Jesus cleansed the temple and then a second time when he went back to do it all over again. We want to begin by looking at this story. <clears throat> now, Jesus is traveling up to Jerusalem for the Jewish Passover. This was one of three yearly festivals where all Jewish men were expected to come to Jerusalem to sacrifice if they were able to, if they were close enough. And so this was one of those times, and Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, during the time period between the Old and New Testament, the uh, belief had taken hold that the Messiah would return on the eve of the Passover to free the Jewish people. And so each year there was an expectation, maybe this will be the year when the Messiah will come. And so there were lots of people who would want to be at Jerusalem for the Passover to be there when the Messiah would come. Now, they actually would see the Messiah, but they would never recognize him as such. So you can see why they would have people from all over the Jewish world. Uh, the population could be as many as several million people present for the Passover in Jerusalem. And uh, there was a time when they made an official count of the number of Passover lambs that were sacrificed and counted 256,000 Passover lambs. And so you can see from this uh, the huge numbers of people and animals that were there. <clears throat> so Jesus would have been an outsider in Jerusalem. He was from Nazareth. He was from the region of the Galilee. And people from this area were kind of considered inferior. They were more or less the country cousins, uh, kind of the, the bumpkins of the area. The people from Jerusalem were the more sophisticated uh, the higher class people, you might say. And so Jesus travels down to Jerusalem, and he confronts what he sees going on in the temple. When he entered the temple, the first part he goes into is called the court of the Gentiles. This is the outside area of the temple. And it's the only part of the temple area where non-Jews could enter. In fact, there were signs put up which threatened death if anyone but a Jewish person would go past this point. So this was taken very seriously. Uh, when Jesus goes into this area, what he finds is people are selling animals to be sacrificed. They're selling sheep. They're selling doves. And they're also exchanging money. Now, the animals there were to be the sacrifice. People who had to travel from quite a distance often they would find it difficult to bring an animal with them. And so instead, they would wait till they got to Jerusalem and they would purchase an animal to be sacrificed. Now, when they bought their animal, they could do so outside the temple. But if you did, you ran the risk that your animal would be found unacceptable. You would have to purchase a different animal. So it was a lot safer if you waited until you got to the temple itself and you bought your animals directly from the priest. You knew that it was going to be accepted. Now, because of this, you were charged a much higher price for an animal that you bought at the temple itself. Sometimes there was a huge difference in price. Uh, a pair of doves may sell for 20 times 
in the temple what it would have sold for outside the temple. And when you stop and think that doves were the sacrifice of people who were poor to begin with, you can see how this would have been an exorbitant price for them to pay. The money changers were there because you had to pay the temple tax, and you could not use any form of money to pay the tax. It had to be a a specific type of money. And so when you got there, you would have to take the money you brought with you, and you would have to exchange it for a form of money that was acceptable to the temple authorities. Now, when they exchanged your money, they charged you to do so. So what we see here is that the court of the Gentiles had become a very chaotic marketplace where poor people, strangers, they were being taken advantage of, all to enrich those that ran the temple. So on seeing this, Jesus has a severe reaction. He actually makes a whip out of cords that he finds there. And he uses this whip to drive out those selling the animals and those exchanging the money. The Bible tells us that he turns over the tables and that, uh, you know, you can imagine uh, animals flying everywhere. You can imagine coins rolling all over the place. So you can see in your mind what would be happening here. Jesus tells them, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So it seems that Jesus is upset, not just because they are cheating people. They are charging these huge prices for the sacrificial animals and to change your money. But he's also upset because they are doing it in the temple, especially the court of the Gentiles. They've taken an area of God's house, an area where you are supposed to worship, And instead, they filled it with people. They filled it with animals. You can imagine the noise as people bargain back and forth. The thing is, this court of the Gentiles was the only place where Gentiles were allowed to worship. So the one place where non-Jews could enter and find the presence of God was being changed into this marketplace, this scene of just confusion and noise and chaos And so their one area of worship had been taken away to be made into a market. So you could see why Jesus was upset. And his reaction had an effect on the disciples. The scriptures tell us that the disciples remember a quote from Psalm, Psalm 69, where David writes, I have become a foreigner to my own family. Zeal for your house consumes me. And Jesus' actions here remind them of this verse. They see a zealousness in action here, a zealousness for God's house. So, as you could expect, Jesus' actions provoke a response from the Jewish religious leaders. They come to him and they ask him, What right do you have to do this? You know, what authority do you have? In other words, they're saying, who made you the boss? Who gave you this power? You know, you're doing this. Show us some proof that you have the right to come in here and do these things. What sign can you show us? Now, it's interesting. They did not rebuke Jesus for actually chasing the money changers and the the animal sellers out of the temple. Uh, This action 
would actually have probably been supported by a large number of the people. You know, there were different religious groups that viewed the temple as being desecrated, and they were upset that the temple was being spoiled in this way. The common people, of course, would be upset that they were being extorted and exploited in this way. So Jesus' actions, you get the idea that the Jewish leaders didn't want to take on what Jesus had done. They didn't want to rebuke him for doing this because that might make the people upset. But they did want to take issue with what gave him the right to do this. Why did Jesus have the authority to do this? And Jesus answers with something very puzzling. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. So they ask him, you know, give us a sign, show us proof. And this is the proof that he offers. Now, they misunderstand it. They look at this huge temple that Herod's built and say, it took 40-something years to build this temple. How in the world are you going to rebuild it in three days? But, of course, Jesus wasn't talking about that. Jesus was referring to his own death and then his resurrection. He was the temple that he was talking about. It's interesting, this would be a sign, but it's a sign that they would only recognize after the fact, after Jesus had died. And it tells us that his disciples remembered this, uh, remembered what Jesus had said after his resurrection. So as we look at this incident from the life of Jesus, we want to look at what does it mean for us? What can we learn from this passage? Now, Jesus was upset and was rebuking the people because the worship at the temple had lost its focus. Jesus was calling them back to focus on the true object of worship, to focus on God the Father and His presence there in the temple. So we want to look at several ways in which the temple had lost its focus. First, temple worship lost its focus because God's presence had taken a back seat to the other interest. There were other things they considered more important, selling the animals, making money. Now, the temple had a unique place, a unique role in the life of Israel. Uh, a lot of villages would have their own synagogues, these places where Jewish men could gather to, to pray and to study the Scriptures. But there was only one temple, and that was in Jerusalem. This was the place where sacrifices had to be made. The temple was the place where God uh, came to earth, where heaven and earth intersected. You know, this was where God had a tangible presence, literally the house of God. First Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicated his original temple, he writes, or the scriptures uh, tell us, the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So the central part of the temple was the most holy place. And this was where originally the Ark of the Covenant had been. But this part of the temple was so sacred, no one could enter it except the high priest. And he could only enter it one time a year to offer sacrifice for the people's sins. So this room contained the very presence of God. 
his uh, presence there was what made the temple sacred. It's what made it so precious. It was the point of everything about the temple. So you came to the temple to be in the presence of God, to be in that one place on earth where you knew God resided. So the temple was to be centered around the presence of God, but the religious leaders, they had changed the whole focus. They had taken the focus off of God and His presence. Now the emphasis was making money. Now, the Old Testament prophets made it clear it wasn't enough to just go through the form and the ritual of worship and sacrifice. You could offer the sacrifices. You could make your offerings. You could pay your tithes. You could say all of the right prayers. You could burn the incense. But these things would actually become an abomination to God if your worship wasn't from the heart. Isaiah 66 verse 3 says, He who slaughters an ox, that is, makes a sacrifice, is in God's sight like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. And so what Isaiah is saying is, you can bring your sacrifices, but if you do this with a heart that's not right, in God's sight, it's as if you were offering uh, a dog or pig's blood or even another human being on God's altar. And so the Jewish people would never dream of coming to the temple and offering these kind of things. But Isaiah is saying, this is what your sacrifice becomes to God. So the question is, what about us? Do we come to church and instead of church being about true worship, we worship in name only. We go through the motions. Uh, we come to church. We sing the songs. We give the offerings. We offer testimony. We listen to the preacher. But we do all of this with a heart that doesn't change. We never surrender our hearts and lives. We keep living exactly the way that we want to. So the prophets would tell us we are better off never even coming to church in the first place if this is going to be the way that we worship. So it's easy for church to, to become about something other than God, for church to become about us. It's not about God, but it's a place that meets our needs. Church becomes a place where we go maybe to find a safe place for our children. You know, we want something that will provide safe entertainment. We want them to be around other kids that we consider to be good kids so they won't have problems with peer pressure and things like this. Church may be a place where we go uh, to meet people that are like us, that are similar to us, uh, where we can find options for socializing with people that we like. For single people, divorced people, church may be a place where you go to, to meet a possible spouse. Church may become a place where you go to be entertained, to hear an interesting speaker, uh, to experience a, a professional music group, a worship team. Church may become a place that you go to show that you're a good person, you know, a place that will enhance your reputation in the community. And this is especially important in our part of the country, the Bible Belt. People want to be known as the type who goes to church. 
So if we want to know why we attend church, look at why we choose a particular church. Most people choose a church just like they choose any other uh, way to spend their money or their time. They ask themselves, what can this church do for me? Do they have a children or youth program? Do they offer activities I can participate in? Does the pastor, the worship team, do they provide a good service? Uh, Basically, does this church provide me with the most of what I want? Now, temple worship had lost its focus also because the religious leaders were preventing the Gentiles from worshiping. They were doing this to benefit themselves. Temple worship had stopped being a way for people to come to God and was being used in a way to show contempt for the Gentiles, those who weren't part of the people of the covenant. The way that the temple was being operated, it clearly showed Gentiles weren't welcome, they weren't valued uh, by the Jewish leader. The Jewish people had always felt a special relationship with God. They uh, were God's chosen people because of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Because of this covenant, because Abraham was so unique in the sight of God, unique in his goodness, unique in his righteousness, many Jews felt that his righteousness would be sufficient for them. In other words, whatever they did would be excused by God because of Abraham, because Abraham was their father. Uh, They were descended from Abraham. In fact, there were actually some rabbis who taught Abraham would stand at the gates of Gehenna, and any Jewish person who had done evil and had been sent there would be turned back because of their association with Abraham. So the Gentiles felt they had, or the Jewish people felt they had this special relationship with God, which excused any of their actions. And they also felt like because Gentiles were not part of this covenant, that God didn't really care about the Gentiles, that they could be scorned, that they could be looked down upon. Now, being able to buy and sell animals in the courts of the temple, this was a big advantage to the religious leaders. You know, it was a significant source of income for them. It was a way to increase their prestige and power. And so what if it shut out the Gentiles from worship? The Gentiles weren't God's people. They weren't important. They didn't merit consideration. So now, worshiping at the temple, which should have brought the Israelites closer to God, became a way of emphasizing their spiritual superiority to remind them they were God's people, the Gentiles were not. Now, this is a problem because it fuels the self-righteousness of the Jewish people, and it also fuels their contempt for those that they consider not righteous. Now, a second great harm to come from this, the Gentiles were being prevented uh, from being able to truly worship. You know, they could no longer access this area as a place of prayer, as a place to experience God's presence. And so we have to ask ourselves, in today's society, do we conduct church in such a way that it actually prevents others from worshiping, from coming to God? Do we really want our churches to be a place that attracts outsiders? Or are we content to keep doing the church in the same way that we've always done it, the way that we like it,
no matter whether it pushes other people away or not. You know, we, we read a lot about worship wars, these conflicts that church get into over how to worship, the type of music, the type of sermon. And a lot of times, you know, these can be a sign. We want church to be done the way we want it, and regardless of how this is going to affect other people. So we can find ourselves doing just what the Jewish leaders were doing. We're shutting out people who want to come to God because we want the church to operate in a specific way. Now, temple worship had lost its focus because the Jewish leaders had lost their zeal for God's house. For God's presence, the temple had become a business and the passion for God was gone. Now, when you look at this, thousands of people would have passed through the temple, especially at the time of Pentecost. Yet none of them responded in the way that Jesus did. Many of them may have been concerned, but they weren't concerned enough to to rock the boat, to make waves. Most of them had probably come to see this as normal. So the work of the temple was still going on. The sacrifices were being offered on schedule. The gifts were being presented. The incense was being burned. It was business as usual. The temple still looked spectacular on the outside. The Gospels tell us how impressed the disciples were with the the grandeur, the size of this temple. So many of the Jewish people would have felt nothing was wrong. Temple worship was stronger than ever, better than ever. But they were missing the whole point of worshiping in the temple. There was no passion. There was no zeal for God's house, for God's presence. Now, we can look at our own churches today. Our churches may be flourishing. You know, attendance is up. Giving is up. We've got programs for everyone, and all of the programs are clicking along. But is there a passion for God, a passion for God himself? This is why God created us, to find delight in him. So our relationship with God should be marked by the highest passion, the highest intensity. John Piper writes, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. In other words, when we are truly enjoying God, we are paying Him the highest compliment. We are showing that we really value who God is, that we see the greatness of God. When we enjoy God, we want to be with Him. We want to be in His presence. So we may come to church and go through all of the service, but do we actually worship? True worship, to value God above everything else, to proclaim the worth and the value of God. Uh, if, we, if we're not doing that, are we showing that we truly value Him? Or do we let other things interfere with our worship? You know, we have several misunderstandings about worship. We think that worship is something that gets done when we get something out of the service, when we learn something, when our hearts are touched with an emotional response. But worship isn't about us. Worship is about God. It's about giving the Lord the glory due His name. Psalm 29, verse 2. So we often do get something for ourselves out of the service. We, we uh, 
feel the presence of God and we enjoy that. But that is not what worship is all about. Worship is about God. It's not about us. We also have a misunderstanding. We don't understand that worship is an action on our part. Worship requires us to do something. We cannot just be passive and sit in the pews. We have to come to church and not let the professionals do the worshiping for us. We have to put forth the effort and the energy uh, to prepare our hearts before we go to church to participate in the worship once we get to church. So if we want to have this zeal, this passion for God's presence, for God's house, what can we do? Well, one thing we can do is we can take seriously the message of the cross. We can reflect on what Christ did for us, on what God did for us in salvation, on what it means that that God would give his only son. C.S. Lewis writes, if Christianity is false, it's not very important at all. But if it's true, it's the most important thing in the world. And then I like this quote from Alan Webster. He writes, Some think of the cross with the same nonchalance they feel about a bowl of oatmeal. Now, you can imagine most of us don't get very passionate about a bowl of oatmeal. So, have we gotten so used to the story of our salvation that we've kind of just let it become... Uh, second nature to us. We, we become very casual about it. A second way that we can increase our zeal for God is to not quench the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us this. The truth is we cannot have a passion for God if we are harboring sin in our lives. We can't have a passion for God when we have the wrong attitudes, when we haven't forgiven our brother or sister. So we need to ask the Spirit to search our hearts, to show us if there's something that's standing in the way between us and having the relationship with God that we really need to be having. We need to put ourselves into the worship service. You know, pay attention to the words that we sing. When we hear the preacher preaching, put yourself into that context. Finally, if we're going to have zeal for God and His presence— We have to invest time in our relationship with God. You know, there's this idea that's been popular over the last 10, 20 years, the idea of quality time. And many parents use this idea to say, I don't have to spend a lot of time with my kids if the time I spend is quality time. But they've about decided that, no, that's not really true. Whether your time with them is quality or not, Kids benefit when you spend a lot of time with them. And this is true with our relationship with God. There's just no substitute for our spending time with God. We can't just get the latest devotional book, give God five minutes of every day, and expect to have a grand passion or zeal for God. We've got to invest time by spending time in His presence. You know, there's an old children's song that says, Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And that's very simplistic, but it's very true. We have to invest the time. And I think finally, we get zeal for God when we ask for it. The Bible tells us that God is our Father who delights in giving to us. It says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. 
God is wanting you to have a zeal and a passion for Him. He's very willing to give this to you. You need to ask Him. So we can see a lot about the temple worship and how it had lost its focus. It had lost its focus because it became focused on outward appearances, on spectacular miracles. You know, the original temple had been destroyed when the people of Israel were hauled off to Babylon. This second temple had been built by Ezra after the return. And when they originally built it, there's an interesting verse from Ezra 3.12 that tells us when many of the older priests, the older Levites, the older family heads, those who had seen the original temple, when they saw the rebuilding of the temple, they wept because of the comparison with the original temple that Solomon had made. So when they rebuilt the temple, it wasn't nearly in the same league as the one Solomon had. But Herod came along and did something about this. He rebuilt the temple and made it into a grand uh, building, into a building of immense size, a building of grandeur. And so finally, the Jewish people had this grand, glorious temple where they could worship. They were attracting people from all over the world. And so to them, this made the temple grand, whether God was actually there or not, whether God was being worshipped or not. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, today, do we do the same things? Do we put our emphasis on the size of our building, the size of our congregation, the quality of the programs that we're able to put out? And do we really miss uh, the fact that God may not be present in our worship? So, you know, today we end up with a very superficial faith. In America, it's not that we reject Christ. Most Americans don't call themselves atheists. You know, they don't go out and become devil worshipers. Large numbers of Americans attend church, and many consider themselves born again. But if most Americans were actually born again, our country would be a tremendously different place. And so we have to say, based on what we can see, we as Americans often have a very superficial faith. Now, the Jewish people, they had this problem with superficial faith. Their faith was based on miracles, on what Jesus could do for them, heal their diseases, cast out demons, raise the dead. But what about us? Our faith is often based on what we expect from Jesus, what we think we can get from Him. The Jewish people had a superficial faith because while they had a high view of who Jesus was, it wasn't high enough. When Jesus asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? The disciples replied, Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, one of the other prophets. Now, this was a lot of praise. These were people who were considered very great in the history of Israel. But they were not the Messiah. The Jewish people were willing to see Jesus as a great teacher, as a righteous person, but not as what Jesus actually was, the Son of God. And the Jewish people also had a superficial faith because they picked and chose what they wanted from the teachings of Jesus. Then they ignored anything that they found distasteful. They were all for the Jesus who cast out demons and raised the dead and fed the 5,000. 
But the Jesus crucified on the cross, they didn't want any part of that Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, how authentic is our faith? You know, are we content to go along with a superficial faith that does nothing to change our lives? Today's lesson, we've looked at one of the more unusual episodes from Jesus' ministry. A time when he confronted the selfishness, the self-righteousness of the religious leaders. These leaders who had embraced a superficial relationship with God. It's ironic that Jesus cleanses the temple twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end of his ministry. And it must have broken his heart when he comes back the second time and finds that nothing has changed in the temple. He comes back to find the same condition still going on. The ones who are abusing uh, the temple, exploiting the poor, they're still going about their same old lifestyles. So the question for us, many of us come to church week after week, Sunday after Sunday. But does anything ever change? Do we find our worship to be authentic, to be life-changing? Or is it a superficial worship? Is it a superficial relationship with God where we look for what we can get from God and not worship God Himself? Zechariah 3.17 tells us that the Lord your God is with you. He will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing. So God delights in you. Do you delight in God? Thank you for spending this time with me. Uh, before we go, let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson that uh, you've taught to us. And we ask that you would help us uh, not to embrace a, a superficial relationship with you, but to go deeper, to have a true, authentic uh, worship for you, a zeal and a passion to have you in our lives. We give you praise in your name. Amen.